0: Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The The Business Business Exit Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful, and yes, some not so successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit.
1: Today we have with us as a guest on the podcast, Chris Wagner. In his first transaction that Chris shares with us, he'll talk a little bit about how a minority shareholder who had his own agenda and when the business was getting ready to close, he attempted to sideline the deal because of his own agenda. For those of you who are listening in, this is a really good story to listen to if you have minority shareholders in your business. Next, Chris will outline a strategy in a transaction he put together, which involved the sales price having some public stock involved. He'll talk a little bit about how the seller was able to protect himself from the decrease in the acquiring company stock price. You'll hear how this turned out to be a really great strategy for his seller. Next, Chris shares a fascinating story, how a chance meeting at an industry conference took a business from a highly commoditized business into becoming a specialty player that literally 10x'd his business, which he eventually sold well into the eight figures. There are some really interesting and great takeaways in this story. Finally, Chris shares how properly valuing a company's IP, that's intellectual property, can leverage the value of that business when you're talking to a strategic buyer if the strategic buyer values that IP and can apply it to their own customer base. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with Chris Wagner. Chris, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your company and where you're located and what you do?
2: Absolutely. My name is Chris Wagner. I'm with Strategic Wealth Partners. I'm the director of transaction advisory with the firm. Um, Our firm works with high net worth individuals. Uh, Many of our clients are uh, are business owners, uh, as well as uh, individuals who are retirees and the like. Um, We tend to provide a lot of uh, advisory um, services to those business owners uh, prior to them uh, selling their business. Many times they're looking to uh, uh, transition the business to the next generation or to their management team. Um, but uh, in many, many cases, they're really looking to sell the business to a third party so that they can uh, move forward with uh, their retirement plans.
1: And where are you located, Chris? We're Located in Cleveland, Ohio. All right. Well, let's jump in and talk about some of those transactions that you've handled over the years that you've been doing this. And uh, give us a little bit of a flavor of the type of companies you're dealing with and some of the motivations for these folks that own these companies of why they're exiting and how the deal transaction went
2: sure absolutely so the first uh, transaction that that comes to mind is a transaction that we worked on a couple of years ago um we had a client that was uh probably in his mid-70s um he had been uh, he'd actually bought uh the business about 25 to 30 years ago and um was really kind of coming to the point where he wanted to spend more time with his grandkids and, uh, spend more time with, uh, um, you know, friends and, and family. Um, so we, uh, we started a process to uh, determine, you know, what was his, what, you know, his business was worth, um, and helping him understand how a transaction would work. Um, he is, uh, he also had a minority shareholder, uh, which he had had in, uh, along with him for a number of years, um, he was much younger, um, and uh, he was really kind of uh, not as uh, not as motivated to sell himself personally, but uh, as a minority shareholder, went along with the transaction. So
1: the minority shareholder, did he work in the business or was he a passive investor? He was a passive investor. What was his background of the shareholder? Was he just a friend or did he have business expertise that he was introduced to the company through? He was actually a,
2: a very interesting uh partner from the standpoint of um, he was um, a, uh, a former CFO um, and had worked with a number of publicly traded companies. Um, so he brought a lot of uh, uh, interesting uh, experience, you know, for a, a business of, of this size.
1: And how did the deal transaction flow when you went out and started to run your process and when you say run the process, would you explain a little bit about what that process involves? Sure. So we uh, so we ran a,
2: a process whereby we we actually went out and uh, uh, put together a buyer list, um, you know, through a number of different databases. Uh, we looked for specific characteristics and buyers um, by both size uh, and industry. Um, and and to some extent geography, uh, just from a standpoint of the fact that you know many times geography can be an important factor uh, with respect to an acquisition uh, of this uh, of this nature. Um, we uh, we then also put together um, what we call a memorandum uh, where we describe the business in detail, um, and then uh, you know pawn the uh, the buyers. Uh, signing a confidentiality agreement, then we provide um, a lot of background on the company and then uh, give them opportunities to, to circle back with us with questions and, and, uh, and then re- at, require them to submit an indication of interest You know, within a certain period of time. The whole idea is to try to run a formal process. We have everyone in, in parallel. Um, so you have multiple buyers track.
1: coming to the table. That's kind of your objective. Correct.
2: Correct. Yeah. So we want to try to create a really create a market. So so that uh, if there's if there's a half a dozen buyers that are interested in the business, we receive their offers and we can we can determine um, really what is the range of value that uh, that the buyers see in the business.
1: So are you actually putting a value on the business when you go out to solicit your offers and you know run the process you're talking about?
2: We, we typically do not. Um, I think the, the idea is that by, um, by going out to uh, many groups, uh, those groups are actually um, kind of the best indication of, of value uh, based, on their own, based on their own analysis from, from the information that we
1: provide. And so when these offers came back, uh, why don't you explain a little bit about how they stacked up and uh, did it meet expectations?
2: Yes. So we had, uh, we had some interesting offers that, that came back. Um, we had uh, a couple of smaller private equity groups um, that were looking for uh, acquisitions um, where they could uh, bolt this on to one of their portfolio companies. Um, and then we had a couple strategics as well, um, one of which um, had a, uh, a very similar business um, that was in another part of the country. Um, but they they really liked uh, the fact that we were located in the Midwest uh, for a variety of reasons and uh, ultimately um, had the uh, highest uh, highest price as well as um, probably the best structure from the standpoint of um, their offer was an all-cash offer.
1: And what uh, kind of was the multiple they were looking at?
2: So with... uh, uh, with respect to the, the multiple, um, the, uh, the group that we identified as really the winning bidder um, came in with a five times EVDA multiple.
1: Was that low, high for this type of industry?
2: Uh, I think for this type of business and the size of this business, it was uh, a very uh, it was a very uh, very good offer. Um, I would say it was definitely uh, kind of on the upper end of the range that we would have expected.
1: And so, since this is probably going to be a little bit of a challenge, because uh, we always talk about our challenging offers that and transactions we're involved in first on our podcast here, how did this roll out? That sounds like things were going well because you have an all cash offer, you have a strategic that likes the business because of where it's located and probably a lot of other reasons. They're obviously motivated. They came in at the top of the range with cash at the table, motivated to close. What's not to like?
2: I agree. It was a uh, it, it was a good uh, it was a good start to uh, to getting a transaction closed. Um, we went through uh, due diligence. Um, they uh, they showed a lot of interest. They sent in uh, a number of uh, middle managers, uh, you know, who were involved in their portfolio business. Um, So they were able to ask good questions, um, and uh, it was was going very well from the standpoint of, you know, we really didn't get a sense that there were any red flags um, uh, that they were finding, you know, as they were uh, going through our numbers and and our processes. Waiting with bated breath here to see where the fly in the ointment is. (laughs) Right. The uh, uh, probably... About two-thirds of the way through the process, uh, out of the blue, the uh, minority shareholder um, brought up an issue uh, around working capital. And um, they, he was very concerned that, um, you know, they have, because they import, uh, they're having, they have shipments that come over quite about every month. Um, they typically had to have a deposit on these containers that were coming in so
1: for clarification just so we have a context what we're talking about here so you have a domestic manufacturer that is bringing in raw materials and components from overseas into containers and they have to put up deposits on these containers while they're in transit and that deposit is refunded once they take delivery on the container right
2: correct and actually the the deposit really gets it, it gets applied to the To the outstanding, uh, uh, you know, payable from the um, from the vendor. So, um, yeah, and and as far as the you know the working capital uh, issue, um, you know, in a transaction such as this, um, we had agreed to an asset an asset sale um, where the transaction was to close um, as a debt free, cash free transaction. So the the buyer was not going to assume any any debt uh, that was uh, held by the, the shareholders. And uh, of course, they, they weren't necessarily going to uh, uh, acquire the, the cash
1: of the business. So, sounds like a pretty clean transaction, but the issue, a minority shareholder here came up and they had a problem with how that was treated as part of the working capital adjustment?
2: Th- that's correct. That's correct. The uh, you know, the idea behind the, the working capital, uh, adjustment is to make sure that, you know, when you're at closing that the, the level of working capital for the business is appropriate. And so that the, the buyer doesn't have to, uh, go and and invest, you know, an additional $200,000 or whatever it might be in order to, you know, pay the outstanding, uh, trade payables or, or, or that, uh, that may be outstanding. Um, uh, and then also make sure that the um, uh, that the seller doesn't necessarily just kind of work down the the assets of the business. Um, and since the working capital is really the lifeblood uh, of the business, you, you have to make sure that that is at a, an appropriate level.
1: And so, really, there's standard formulas and procedures and practices in the mergers and acquisition field of how those working capital adjustments are computed and. Would the deposits have normally been included in that?
2: Yes, that those deposits would would have been included in that working capital number uh, and would have been really kind of part of the inventory, if you will. If, you know, it's kind of
1: like prepaid inventory. And so this was an issue and sounds like it became a big issue. It, yes, it, it did. The uh, um, The
2: minority shareholder could convince the majority shareholder that, um, you know, at closing, the uh, um, you know, despite the the target number of working capital that we agreed to, um, that the majority shareholder and the minority shareholder would would be due uh, a uh, a payment uh, for that deposit um, at closing because they felt like if uh, if they didn't receive that deposit, then um, the uh, the buyer effectively received uh, inventory at a significant discount.
1: Well, without getting into the weeds and the details of the transaction and everything, we're really at a standoff, it sounds like, is that they were expecting to have those deposits credited to them in escrow, and the buyer had a different feeling on how that is to be treated.
2: Th- that's correct. And uh, so despite uh, many conversations with, uh, with my client uh, and helping them try to understand the, the protocol and how that uh, typically works in a transaction, um, they did not move off of their position, and consequently consequentially, uh, was not able to uh, uh, get the buyer uh, uh, kind of in the position where, where they were willing to give on that on that point, and so the, uh, the buyer ultimately walked away from. the transaction.
1: So you had all cash deal closing in a condensed time frame, everything else from all the due diligence people that came in and found no skeletons in the closet and things were just going really well. It was a good fit for the buyer and as an acquisition for a strategic position of being located in the Midwest and over a deposit, they walked away. It sounds like there's something else going on here. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, this minority shareholder being a CFO of public companies, he certainly understood these type of financial arrangements and transactions. Was there really, do you believe something else going on?
2: I do. I think that, um, uh, I think the CFO would have absolutely, uh, been aware of, of how, um, you know, that would be treated. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that there certainly could have been, um, uh, some motivation in order to uh, hamper the transaction. Um, given that you know he had he had been in the in this investment for some time and wasn't necessarily motivated to to sell the business.
1: So I guess the real takeaway here, if you had to consolidate it down into a one two sentence takeaway, what would it be?
2: Well, I would say that when you're selling a company, you, you really do need to understand uh, the process. You need to understand. Uh, the protocols and and listen to your advisors uh, I'd say that most most small business owners even mid-sized business owners um, they they haven't typically sold a business before um, and when you're working with investment bankers those are individuals that will work on multiple transactions year in year out and so they um, when they tell you that you know certain uh, protocols um, take place, and there are certain um, kind of standard operating procedures and transactions. Um, you, you should take uh, take their their advice. Um, and I think the other one is is that you know you need to be careful uh, in assessing uh, your you know your business partners' motives. Um, you know when when something like this comes up where. Um, your your partner is telling you one thing, but your your investment banker, uh, professional M and A advisor is telling you something uh, different. Um, I think that would be a cause for you to step back and. And really kind of assess what, what, uh, what's going on there.
1: I think that's vice well placed and for consideration, especially when you have people, as you said, one was in the 70s, and the other one was probably 20 more years younger. So, they have totally different motivations and you have to be somewhat concerned about what the motivations of the shareholders are. Well, why don't we go on and talk about another transaction you've been involved in that had its issues? Uh, certainly. So,
2: um the second company that uh, we'll talk about is a, a business services company that um, had been around for about thirty years. Um, our client actually had uh, started it, started the business from scratch out of his out of his garage, if you will. Um, and uh, again, he had a partner. He started the business with uh, his best friend from from grade school. Um, they were uh, majority minority, uh, shareholders. Our client was about an 80% shareholder and, uh, his, his partner and friend was about 20%. Um, they were getting up in age and I think it was just, they felt like it was time to, to slow down and, and really pass the baton. Uh, they built a, a really good business, had a nice management team, um, a, a great book of, um, a really great book of clients, um, that had been with them for, for many years. And, as, uh, we started talking to them, um, uh, about, uh, about their business and their plans. Um, they, uh, you know, they were very, very interested in, in trying to see, you know, what, uh, uh, what third party buyers, uh, you know, would, uh, would see in the business and what kind of valuation that, that they would see. Um, so we, uh, began a process, started, uh, um, looking at, uh, at the business and, and uh, a decision was was made that this was uh, a good time to sell the business. So um, we uh, began to to run a process where we went out to uh, a potential strategic buyers as well as some private equity groups, um, put together a buyer list and, and a, a management presentation, and uh, came out with uh, some some very very good interest in, in the company. Um, probably our our best. Um, most interesting party that that came to the table was actually a publicly traded entity um, they had a subsidiary that had a business that was very similar to our clients and um, I think there was uh, a lot of uh, um, like good synergies I think on, on both sides I felt like this was a really good fit so um, not only did they come in with the best price but I think they um, also were the party with probably the the best potential, um, fit uh, for the long run with respect to the business model and, and as well as their employees.
1: And how was the offer structured? Was it all cash?
2: Uh, this transaction actually was structured as a cash and stock deal.
1: So we're dealing with a publicly, when you say stock, then it's a publicly traded company with specific valuation.
2: That's correct. That's correct. So um, this this buyer came, uh, came to the table with a, tra- a structure that uh, was about sixty percent cash and forty uh, percent of the uh, of the transaction proceeds would then be in their uh, uh, publicly traded shares
1: well let me ask you Chris, on a situation like this where you have publicly traded stock that has value that fluctuates on a daily if not hourly basis and certainly over several months of closing how do you peg the price and so that the stock doesn't get misvalued or the valuation of the company isn't misvalued as it relates to the stock how did you resolve those type of issues
2: that, that's a great question um and i, I think the uh, the solution that that i came up with uh, on this deal was to go back to to the buyer and uh uh and start having a conversation about um, a collar. So um, that would be a, a structure where we try to limit the uh, the volatility or the movement um, in their stock price uh, within a, a specified range.
1: So let me see if I can understand what you just said. A collar is really nothing more than establishing a range of what the value of the asset, in this case of stock, is going to be. And what was that range? That's correct.
2: So we had um, structured a, um, a deal where on the if the stock that they were going to um, transact with had fallen more than 10%, uh, then the buyer would make up the difference the, in value uh, in cash. So, if the stock had fallen 20%, then they would effectively make up uh, 10% of the decline in value.
1: Putting that into numbers then, so let's say the stock had a value of a million dollars and the stock fell 20%, and there was a 10% lower limit on this collar, then the buyer had to make up the balance of the 10% or write a check, in essence, for $100,000 and make up that difference in cash. That's correct. So the buyer is protected. He's not going to get any less than that amount. Well, what about the upside? Is uh, is there a limit on the upside or can the buyer just ride the stock if it doubled or tripled in value?
2: No, so on the, on the upside, you know, again, it kind of has to, you know, it's got to be balanced. So uh, on the upside, if the uh, shares were to have appreciated, by more than 10%, then uh, our client would have to then surrender uh, the, the number of shares that would effectively uh, limit him to a 10% gain on those uh, on the appreciation.
1: Well, that's an interesting solution and a very equitable way to structure something like this for any of our podcast listeners out there that may be dealing with something similar or thinking about it or may in the future face this type of issue in a negotiation when they're selling their company. How did this work out given that the transaction unfolded when it came time to closing? Did it fall within the 10%? Uh,
2: It it did. At closing, we were fine. However, because there are some uh, periods of time where you, you have the shares locked up, we had good
1: protection so what was that period? Was it six months, a year? How long did this caller last then?
2: So the uh, the initial period was six months, and so the uh, uh, over that period of time, the the shares actually did drop in value, um, and uh, subsequently our our client was able to to be paid for um, the uh, the decline a decline in value, which kept them uh, with a. You know, maximum loss of ten percent at
1: that point. So this worked out fairly well for the client. Then he had downside protection when he's dealing with a public entity like this. So he eliminated his exposure.
2: That, that's correct. And then the the additional upside is that uh, per the agreement um, at the at the time that um, that we executed the the collar, um, you know, they did not necessarily have to give up the shares. So. Um, if you know our client, you know our client can decide, you know, uh, if and when to sell those shares, so they receive the the true up, if you will, um, and are made uh, you know, receive the um, the compensation from from the collar. Um, they they do not have to uh, go ahead and sell the shares. What you're
1: telling me is, let's just play out a scenario here. So the let's say the stock dropped twenty percent don't know what it dropped, but they were paid out that extra amount in cash. So they got the cash in hand today to protect them on the downside, but they didn't have to sell the stock. And in theory, if the stock doubled in price, since they didn't have to sell the stock by agreement, they could have rode those appreciated shares up and maybe doubled their money. That's That's absolutely right. Very cool. Well, what would you say the real takeaway is on something like this when you're structuring a deal? What would you say the takeaway for our audience here is?
2: Well, I think from a standpoint of um, of stock transactions, I think you know there uh, there are a lot of lot of stories that I've heard where people will um, take stock and and it, and it doesn't end well. And I think the the thing to remember is that there are there are a number of Uh, vehicles that can be used in order to help protect uh, your downside. And, and, you know, the thing you have to think about in a transaction like this is it it needs to be balanced and and it needs to have a kind of a win-win component. So um, by uh, structuring the collar where you have some protection on on both ends, you know, there's there's shared risk, if you will.
1: All right. Well, I think that's good advice. And uh, certainly in this particular situation, they were protected on the downside. And so they didn't have a, a bad ending to their story. Why don't we move on now and talk about some transactions you've been involved in that uh, had some real good upside to them and the story turned out to be real beneficial for your clients?
2: Absolutely. Um, a number of years ago,
1: um, I had uh,
2: worked with a, uh, a uh, business owner who started a business um, along with his wife and it was a uh, kind of a commodity business it really wasn't anything all that, uh, all that special, but uh, it was kind of one of those businesses that, uh, put food on the table and, um, you know, it was made, made for a nice living. Um, our, uh, our client was uh, kind of engineer by, by trade and he had started a little electronics business. I think they were, they were making a uh, little printed circuit boards for, uh, for companies that, that had, uh, products uh, where they needed some rudimentary kind of printed uh, circuit boards. And um, the uh, the business changed one day. Um, the path changed one day when he went to a um, a, a trade show and uh, was visited by uh, an executive from a medical device company that explained to him a, a problem that, that they had experienced with respect to... Um, their their devices when they were being installed and effectively the the problem was that there were some very fine little wire uh leads which the uh, surgeon needed to secure onto the device at the time that they were implanted um and oftentimes surgeons would tighten them up too much and the wires would break and they would create you know a number of serious issues um so the uh our client had. Uh, uh, further conversations with the executive and, and came back to him with uh, some ideas about how you might solve that problem. Um, and uh, the, uh, the idea took off. And uh, one thing led to another. And and our client was uh, manufacturing, effectively, a little plastic torque wrench um, that effectively was um, included as part of the, the kit Uh, when the medical device was installed. Within a very short period of time, um, he was providing this product to uh, the three major manufacturers of of that medical device in the industry.
1: And I understand, as you've explained your client's path here of taking from a commodity business into a more specialty-oriented business and really shifted the entire Type of business he was in.
2: Absolutely, um, you know as I as I mentioned, this all happened in a fairly uh, short period of time, just a, a few years. Um, his business was uh, the time that that we met him. Uh, his business was generating about nine million in revenue. And, and generating about six million in EBITDA.
1: And so this was after his shift, right? That he'd gone from the commodity business to the new plastic torch wrench business for medical devices. And he had scaled up his business to, he said, nine million in revenue and six million in EBITDA. That is one whale of a gross margin there. That, that's EBITDA. So that's, that's incredible.
2: Uh, yes, yeah, that's correct. Um, it just, it was, a, a very simple idea. Um, and, and he was able to, to manufacture it in a very, very cost-efficient manner. And uh, so he, uh, you know, he developed, um, you know, really turned a, really turned a corner uh, from a standpoint of having a business that was just putting, putting food on the table to something that uh, had, you know, where he had created some significant value.
1: So he came to a point... In his life and career, that he decided to exit, and that's when he reached out to you. And what was his expectations of an exit value that he would hope to get for his business? Yes,
2: yeah, so um, he came to me uh, after we had an initial conversation about the business, and he said, "You know, Chris, if you could, if you could generate um, thirty-four million dollars out of this business, you know, in a sale, he goes, I, I would be extremely grateful." And I, you know, I thought about it and I was like that, you know, this is a, I said, that's, that's an interesting number. Um, You know, I think, uh, you know, oftentimes when you see valuations like that, you know, there's a bit more of a, um, you know, there's a little bit more of a a growth, uh, a growth factor, even though, you know, we had, uh, he had turned his corner and had created a fair amount of value. um, You know, his, uh, his outlook as far as, you know, growth was, was pretty flat even though he had some really great profit margins.
1: And so you took on the client and do what you do. And what is the outcome of all of the, the work on this type of business with these type of margin?
2: So we, uh, we did. We took, we took the company to market, um, primarily went to private equity buyers um, who had uh, a pretty good understanding of the, the medical device space. I, again, you know, this was not necessarily a medical device company. Um, so we weren't going to get that we weren't going to get a medical device valuation per se um, but um, we did attract a considerable amount of attention and interest and uh, we ultimately closed the deal for 46 million dollars
1: in a cash deal all cash all cash (laughs) well i guess you had a happy client huh
2: Absolutely. Um, it was a, a great, a great ending for a, a really great, uh, really great guy.
1: So let me go back and unpack this transaction and take a look at what the takeaway would be here. I guess if I had to say you have a company here that's a commodity oriented business. As you said, it put bread on the table, nothing spectacular, made a living. You had an engineer type that, in a casual conversation at a trade show, changed the trajectory of his business. And he ended up with really what you're telling me is a $46 million idea of a very simple solution to a a problem that no one had solved up to that point in time in the medical device world. And so I guess for me, in listening to this story, which is somewhat inspirational, I guess, is that there's opportunities where you might least expect it and you just got to keep your eyes open and sometimes those ideas can really alter the trajectory and complexion of your business and end in a, a phenomenal exit like your client did here
2: that's correct yeah it's uh it, you know he it, had he been uh you know married to the um you know printed circuit board business this opportunity never would have uh, uh, come about this way.
1: Well, that's, that's a great story, Chris. I appreciate you sharing that. Well, let's wrap up today with one last transaction that had a good outcome like this, that our listeners can think about and benefit from. So why don't you wrap it up with one additional story for us? Sure.
2: Um, so we, um, we had another client that was in the uh, medical uh, healthcare space um, we had a client that, uh, basically they, uh, had produced some drug development tools. So they were, uh, basically enabling technologies that, that drug companies would typically, uh, use for developing, uh, new medications and, and, uh, treatments. Um, we were introduced, uh, uh by the, uh, by one of our research analysts who was, was aware of the, aware of the business and, uh, Um, so we went out and met with the company and you know kind of on first blush you know we we pretty much understood what what the business did Um, and uh, kind of as a part of our process we would go back and and do a a business valuation and you know kind of based on the uh, cash flows uh, that that the business was generating and and what they did um, we came up with a a business valuation of about 50 million dollars and I think there was uh, a fair amount of interest on our side. You know, we felt like that was a, a fair value and a very interesting business. And
1: how did the client feel about that valuation? Sometimes expectations are much higher than that.
2: And you know, it's it's as as we find many times, um, business owners you know value their businesses at, at a higher uh, at a higher level. I think their uh, their expectations were probably closer to maybe sixty five million. Um, and uh, we were a bit concerned that, you know, at that time, that based on what we knew about the business, that, you know, it, that, may, that may be a little bit far afield from, you know, from what a, a buyer might be interested in paying for that business.
1: But you were using the, your valuation of $50 million strictly based on the free cash flow in the business. That's correct. That's correct. And so you were running a traditional cash flow evaluation, and based on that, that was a realistic expectation that you would anticipate the market would see, right?
2: That's correct. So we uh, we were able to uh, negotiate a uh, an engagement letter and and uh, um, began our process where we jumped in and, and did due diligence and started you know drafting a, a memorandum describing the business and. Came up with our, our buyer list and, and started, you know, started our process of going out and, and contacting uh, buyers.
1: So, in your due diligence, did you find things that outside of the cash flow that had intrinsic value in the business? Uh, that's
2: a great question. Is because one thing that we found um, as we as we really started spending more time with the company was really uh, coming to realize the amount of intellectual property. Um, that existed um, you know in the business and and so while they sold different products um, to to their customers uh, they were great products but there was clearly a lot of uh, additional IP that was underlying those products and um, you know so as we went to market we became more comfortable that you know I think our, our client was correct I think you know, there, there may be more
1: value here. Let me just ask a question. As you raised an interesting point here, that the deeper you got in and understanding really what the this intellectual property, the IP, and the business was, you really took on the opinion that this IP was somewhat valuable, maybe more valuable than certainly what they were being able to monetize it at. And so, when you went out and looked at your target. Buyers? Did you take that into consideration on the type of strategics or financial buyers that you were looking to approach?
2: Yes, because we we saw that um, you know because there looked like there was a bit more value there. Um, we started thinking about what other buyers might be interested in some of this IP, um, and in which may be able to you know monetize. You know, not just the products that this company made, but you know the underlying IP that that backed up these products.
1: And so, you went to market, and you had more than one group come to the table.
2: We absolutely did. We had uh, we had a very very strong level of interest. We had probably a half a dozen uh, serious buyers at the table, and uh, ultimately, um, we uh, we were able to close a transaction uh not at 50 million but actually at 200 million.
1: Oh, wait a minute. No. So you went from 50 and an expectation of your client maybe 65 and by leveraging this IP into the right type of buyers, they saw obviously tremendous value in what this IP would really could do for their company or their companies they were working with and the customer base obviously. That's correct. That's correct. And so just thinking out loud here, it would seem then that the reason they would put that value so high is because they figured this IP could be monetized with an existing customer base or future customers or cross selling or doing something that would justify that type of valuation. And they were willing to pay up for that valuation. That's
2: correct. The, uh, yeah, the, the intellectual property I think that they, um, that they saw here. Was something that would really was was going to be a game changer
1: for uh,
2: for this segment of their business.
1: Well, it's kind of interesting. So what you, I guess, the takeaway really is, is that sometimes there's value locked up inside of a company that maybe even the buyers and sometimes their advisors really don't understand or know about, and that's why it's important to really lift up the hood and understand, especially on the technology side and the intellectual property side, really what you have. And in this particular situation, you're saying that this was really a diamond in the rough and that you were able to get the right buyers to the table that could unlock that value. And that value was returned to your client in a very aggressive offer for what they had created on their IP that obviously they didn't think that they had. They didn't, they didn't really recognize. What they really had, I guess.
2: That's that's absolutely right. Um, you know, if we had just gone to some financial investors who might have just valued the business based on you know the cash flow streams and maybe provided uh, you know maybe some estimated uh, uh, additional value for, for the IP, yeah, you know, I don't think we would have would have seen that. And I think by um, by our client um, you know, effectively reaching out and, and hiring an investment banker to run a, a broad marketing process and trying to clear the market uh, to make sure that we've covered everyone who's going to have uh, you know, an interest um, in, in looking at this type of business. Um, they were able to really uncover you know, every potential opportunity to, to monetize the, the business that they had there.
1: Well, I think there's really good takeaways, regardless of the size of business, whether it's a a million dollar business or a $50 million business that you you have. It's really two takeaways for me on this transaction, Chris, is really that you really got to target the type of buyer that you're, that you're looking. Take some time and identify who would value what you have. And, you know, secondly, I guess is really to understand what those type of buyers need. And if you can figure out a need, And something that is of value to them, it may be worth a lot more to them than it is to you. And in this case, this is a case in point is that this IP was worth multiple times more than the company could have ever been able to create that type of value in the company they had and it was only realized when it was unlocked by someone else that I really understood that value well these are great takeaways Chris I appreciate the time you've spent with us here today uh, so if anyone in our audience uh, that's listening here a business owner that would want to reach out and contact you with, these transactions or other things that you do, how would they do that? What's the best way for them to reach out to you?
2: Uh, The best way to to reach out to us is give me a call at area code 216-800-9000.
1: All right. We'll have that in our show notes. And what's your website so they may be able to check your website out too?
2: Our website is swpconnect.com. All right.
1: All right. Well, Chris, thank you for the time you spent with us here today. And so this is Marvin Storm with the Business Exit Stories, and we'll be talking again on our next episode. Thank you, Marvin.
0: Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember... Maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically, it takes planning.